Hey friends, welcome back to The Catwalk. My name is Clark Cowden. I'm your host for this podcast, and I want to thank you for joining with me again for this week's message. As we continue uh, looking at the idea of forgiveness, today we're talking about the unbroken chain of unforgiveness. What happens when we refuse to forgive other people? How does that not only affect them, but how does that affect us? And what are the implications of this over a lifetime of unforgiveness? What are the impacts and what does the Bible tell us about how we can overcome this and prevent the negative impacts from this affecting our lives? I invite you to sit back and relax and reflect on this message on an unbroken chain. Philip Yancey once wrote a story that began with a woman named Daisy. Daisy was born in Chicago in 1898. She was the eighth of ten children in a working-class family. Their father barely earned enough money to feed them all, and after he started drinking, money became even scarcer. Daisy lived to be about a hundred years old. But even at that age, she still shuddered when she talked about those days. She said her dad was a mean drunk. She used to cower in the corner, sobbing as he kicked her baby brother and sister across the linoleum floor. She hated him with all of her heart. One day, her father declared that he wanted their mom out of the house by noon. All ten kids crowded around their mother, clinging to her skirt and crying. But their father wouldn't back down. Holding on to her brothers and sisters for support, Daisy watched through the bay window as her mother walked down the sidewalk, shoulders drooping, a suitcase in each hand, growing smaller and smaller until she finally disappeared from sight. Some of the children eventually rejoined their mother, and some went to live with other relatives. For some reason, her father kept Daisy with him. She grew up with a hard knot of bitterness inside of her, a tumor of hatred of what he had done to their family. All of the kids dropped out of school early to take jobs or join the army. And then one by one, they moved away to other towns. They got married, started families of their own, and tried to put the past behind them. Their father vanished. No one knew where he was, and no one cared. Many years later, to everyone's surprise, their father resurfaced. He had guttered out. Drunk and cold, he had wandered into a Salvation Army rescue mission one night. To earn a meal ticket, he first had to attend a worship service. When the speaker asked if anyone wanted to accept Jesus, he thought it was only polite to go forward along with some of the other drunks. 
He was more surprised than anybody when the sinner's prayer actually worked. The demons inside of him quieted down. He got sober. He began to study the Bible. He started to pray. For the first time in his life, he felt loved and accepted. He felt clean. Now he was looking up all of his children one by one. He had come to ask for forgiveness. He couldn't defend anything that had happened. He couldn't make it right. But he was more sorry than they could possibly imagine. If you were in that situation, what would you do? The children were all now middle-aged with families of their own. Initially, they were skeptical. Some doubted his sincerity. Some waited for him to fall off the wagon again. Others figured he had really come to ask for money. But none of those things happened. In time, he won them over, all except for Daisy. Long ago, Daisy had vowed that she would never speak to her father again. She wouldn't call him her father. She called him that man. Her father's reappearance rattled her badly. Old memories of his drunken rages came flooding back as she lay in bed at night. He couldn't undo all of that damage simply by saying, I'm sorry. She wanted no part of him. Their father had given up drinking, but alcohol had damaged his liver beyond repair. He got very sick. For the final five years of his life, he lived with one of his daughters, Daisy's sister. They lived eight houses away from her, but Daisy never went to see him. Even though he was dying, she never stopped in to see him. Even though she passed by their house whenever she went to the grocery store or caught a bus, she never stopped in to talk. Daisy did allow her children to visit their grandfather. Nearing the end, her father saw a little girl come to see him. He said, oh, Daisy, Daisy, you've come to see me at last. He cried, holding her in his arms. The adults in the room didn't have the heart to tell him it wasn't Daisy. It was her daughter, Margaret. He was hallucinating Grace. All of her life, Daisy was determined not to be like her father. She never touched, touched a drop of alcohol. Yet she ruled her family with a milder version of the tyranny she had grown up with. She would lie on the couch with an ice pack on her head and scream at her kids to shut up. She would yell at her kids, why did I ever have you stupid kids anyway? You've ruined my life. The Great Depression had hit, and each child was one more mouth to feed. She had six kids in all, raising them in a two-bedroom row house 
that she lived in the rest of her life. In such close quarters, they were always underfoot. Some nights she gave them a whipping just to make a point. She knew they had done something wrong, even if she hadn't caught them. Hard as steel, Daisy never apologized. She never forgave. Her daughter, Margaret, remembers as a child coming in tears to apologize for something she had done. Daisy responded with that terrible catch-22. You can't possibly be sorry. If you were really sorry, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. Margaret had many stories where her mother refused to forgive her. All of her life, she was determined not to be like her mother, Daisy. But Margaret's life had its own tragedies. As her four children became teenagers, she felt like she was losing control of them. She too wanted to lie on the couch with an ice pack and scream, shut up. She too wanted to whip them just to make a point or to release the anger that was coiled up inside of her. Her son, Michael, turned 16 in the 1960s. He really got under her skin. He listened to rock and roll, wore granny glasses, and let his hair grow long. Margaret kicked him out of the house when she caught him smoking pot. So he moved into a hippie commune. She continued to threaten him and scold him. She reported him to a judge. She wrote him out of her will. She tried everything she could think of, but she couldn't get through to Michael. One day she got so angry at him, she said, I never want to see you again for as long as I live. That was 26 years ago, and she hasn't seen him since. Philip Yancey became a close friend with Michael. Several times during those 26 years, he attempted some kind of reconciliation between the two. But each time he ran into the powerful force of unforgiveness. When he asked Margaret if she regretted anything she had said to her son, or if there was anything she would like to take back, she blew up with a flash of hot rage. She said, I don't know why God didn't take him long ago for all the things he did. Her hands were clenched. Her face was tight. The little muscles around her eyes were twitching. He asked her, do you mean you wish your own son was dead? She didn't answer. Michael emerged from the 60s mellower. His mind had been dulled by LSD. He moved to Hawaii, lived with a woman, left her, lived with another woman, left her, and then got married. He said, this one is the real thing. This one will last. But it didn't. 
After the divorce, he was so angry at her, he said, I hope I never see her again as long as I live. He sounded a lot like his mother, Margaret, who sounded a lot like her mother, Daisy, who sounded a lot like her father. It was an unbroken chain. The chain had not been broken over 100 years. It had become like a spiritual defect encoded in the family DNA. Ungrace and unforgiveness was the family trait that got passed down from one generation to the next. If you read the Bible, you will come to understand that this is not God's will for our lives. But how can the chain be broken? How can we be set free from the destruction of our sinful nature, where the longer it goes unchecked, the harder it is to break free? In the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, he shares three stories of grace and forgiveness that Jesus taught. These help us understand the nature and character of God. In Luke 15, 1 to 10, Jesus said, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. After this, Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son that we talked about last week. All three of these parables are about sin and grace and forgiveness. Jesus tells them to teach us something about the nature of God. God is a seeking God. God is not a passive God who sits back unable or unwilling to change things. God is an active God, a proactive God, who takes the initiative to go out and find the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The point of these parables is that we are the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. 
The good news is that God keeps looking for each one of us. The good news is that God is not like Daisy or Margaret, who gets so angry with us that he says, I wish I had never had you. I wish you had never been born. God doesn't kick us out of his house. God doesn't write us out of his will. When we are reunited with God, he doesn't berate us or beat us over the head or tell us how stupid we've been or how ignorant we've been or how ungrateful we've been. God rejoices that he has found us. God is excited that we have come home. And there is more rejoicing in heaven with the angels over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who never left. In a cruel irony, a refusal to forgive other people for the hurt they have caused you can often hurt you more than it hurts them. Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa knows something about this. He once said, to forgive is not just to be altruistic. The process of forgiveness does not exclude hate and anger. These emotions are all part of being human. When I talk of forgiveness, I mean the ability to let go of the right to revenge and to slip the chains of rage that bind you to the person who harmed you. When you forgive, you are free of the hatred and anger that locks you in a state of victimhood. If you can find it in yourself to forgive, you can move on. And you may even help the perpetrator to become a better person. The writer Anne Lamott once said, not forgiving is like taking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. Forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. You're done. It doesn't necessarily mean that you want to have lunch with the person. Our tendency is to wait until we feel like forgiving someone before we forgive them. The Bible tells us to do the opposite. The Bible tells us to forgive them first, begin to act in forgiving ways first, and then the feelings will follow. It's only by taking actions of forgiveness that we can snap the unbroken chain of bitterness and unforgiveness. It's only by acting in grace that is not deserved that we set ourselves free from the damage we do to ourselves by not forgiving. In Romans 12, 19 to 21, Paul writes this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
This is how we break the chain of unforgiveness. This is how we keep from destroying our lives. When other people hurt us, we don't look for ways to hurt them back. Because in setting out to hurt them, we hurt ourselves. We don't forgive other people because they deserve it. God doesn't forgive us because we deserve it. God forgives us even though we don't deserve it, and we are called to do the same. A refusal to forgive can create a hardened heart and a malicious mind and get us stuck in a poison prison we might not get out of. The story of Daisy's family is a true story. The problems began with her father, if not before. What he did was wrong, very wrong. He hurt a lot of people and the damage was done. But when he bottomed out, he gave his life to Christ and he became a changed man. He returned to each of his children to ask for forgiveness. I doubt that was easy. I doubt they wanted to, but all of them forgave him, all of them except for Daisy. The good news of the story is that forgiveness is possible. All of Daisy's brothers and sisters forgave their dad. They reconciled. He got to see his grandkids. Healing took place in their family. It was the power of God. But the sad news of the story is that Daisy never forgave her dad. And that unbroken chain had negative consequences for her, for her children, and for her grandchildren. Sin and hurt and pain can get passed down from one generation to the next. And it's not surprising when it does. But that doesn't have to be the story of our lives. The God we serve is like a shepherd who goes looking for his lost sheep. Instead of staying with the 99, he pursues the lost one. When he finds it, he doesn't scold the sheep for wandering off. He rejoices and celebrates that it was found. The God we serve is like a woman who loses one of her 10 silver coins. She won't rest until she finds it and then rejoices when she has. The God we serve is like a father who loses a son. And when he finally returns home, he doesn't unleash his anger on him. He celebrates and throws a party that they have been reunited. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives to shape us so that we are becoming like Christ. And the more we become like Christ, the more we will forgive, even when we don't feel like it. And when we forgive, we break the chain of ungrace so it doesn't get passed on to the people we love. God bless Stay safe. See you soon.